Well, we welcome you to Redeemer this morning and very glad that we can uh, have this time and worship together. If you uh, happen to be uh, visiting uh, during this wonderful uh, Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we hope you had a great time uh, together as a family and uh, hope that you're Uh, enjoy your travels home if you're living somewhere else. If you do want to register your presence with us, you can just text uh, the word welcome to the number that's in the bulletin, uh, and that will uh, let us know that you were just, if you want to say you were just visiting, that's great. Uh, If you happen to be visiting with us today and you are local uh, and you'd like to get connected with one of the pastors, maybe for coffee and just be able to get to know you a little bit better, uh, go ahead and text uh, welcome also to that number uh, that's in the bulletin. Uh, We have uh, a few announcements. So after the uh, morning worship service, the uh, middle school will be uh, practicing with the children's choir uh, right after the service uh, here in the sanctuary. And then when that is completed, uh, close to 11 o'clock or so, we'll have our adult Sunday school class in here where Pastor Jeff is going to be teaching on uh, how should we think about Israel today. And uh, the middle and high school students will also meet in their Sunday school classes uh, here in the sanctuary as well for that particular class. Uh, Coming up on Saturday, we have our men's fellowship breakfast on December 2nd. Uh, That's at 7.30 a.m. And I would love to have all the men here uh, participate in that. Uh, You can uh, sign up uh, on our church website uh, or talk to Adam Gorleski if you have any questions. Uh, We have also a congregational meeting uh, coming up next Sunday, December 3rd. Uh, This is for us to officially uh, respond to uh, Pastor Dan um, moving to a different church, and uh, so that requires a congregational vote uh, for um, dismissing a pastor to a different call. And then uh, regarding uh, officer nominations, we have the forms available at the Welcome Center. Uh, This is the season for prayerfully considering uh, which uh, men in the congregation you would consider uh, nominating for both uh, office of elder and deacon. And uh, those uh, forms should be submitted to the session mailbox, which is the top right corner of that mailbox um, uh, set up uh, right by the Welcome Center there. And uh, those are due on December 17. So really appreciate your help with that. So let's take this moment now and prepare our hearts to come before our God. Well, we love gathering for worship uh, each Sunday, uh, morning and evening, to uh, bring praise to our wonderful God. But the psalmist reminds us this morning that his praise should continually be in our mouths, not just twice a week, uh, but all the time, bringing praise to our wonderful God. It says in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. We don't have a thousand tongues here, but we're close, so let's uh, stand and sing praise to our wonderful God. (laughs) 
Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come with thankful hearts that you have brought us to this place, that we might sing your praise, Lord, that you have done a great work uh, in us uh, because you have helped us to understand who Jesus is, what he has done for sinners like us, and what it is not just to know about him, but to know him uh, by saving faith. And we just ask that as your uh, spirit has done this work uh, in our lives, we will understand what it is to be transformed more and more into his likeness, that you would do your work in our hearts uh, to draw us near to you in this time of worship, and that you would get the worship that you are worthy of as your spirit leads us. We pray uh, for all the ways that you have blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, it is because of His holy name that we come before Him, uh, not only acknowledging His greatness, but acknowledging our weakness and the wickedness that is natural to our hearts. And so we have uh, every week in our time of worship a time of confession. And uh, we've been going through our Ten Commandments, and uh, we come to the Ninth Commandment uh, this morning, uh, found in uh, the uh, Ten Commandments listed in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, so I will read uh, the commandments, and then we will confess our faith together uh, using the larger catechism, and then uh, take some time to uh, have a, a time of confession so, uh, of our sin. So here is the word of the living God, uh, the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And let us answer this question uh, together. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully, speaking the truth and only the truth, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocence, a ready receiving of a good report and willingness to admit an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers. So as we think about all that is required uh, in that commandment to not bear false witness, right? Next week we look at what are the sins forbidden, but looking at the duties required, the things that stand out uh, to me is all that is involved with uh, having a rejoicing in the good name of my neighbor, right? I mean, when is the last time you remember uh, somebody rejoicing uh, in the good name of their neighbor, Right, many times it's, did you hear what such and such did? Oh my goodness, did you hear about that? Right, there are so many times that we uh, think about the uh, ways that our neighbors' names uh, are brought, uh, not covering their iniquities, but making their iniquities known. Right, not addressing that person uh, directly, and it says an unwillingness to receive a bad report. Well, that means even if somebody else is gossiping right? We have a responsibility to not receive that report, right? In that moment, our job is to say what? Is to say, have you talked to that person about your concern? That's the only thing that we need to say when they're bringing a bad report about somebody else. Have you talked to that person about your concern? That is the way to end gossip and the way that the Lord is calling us as a church to build up one another and to only speak well uh, of each other for the glory of God and to reconcile with those that we have our differences with. Let us go to him in silent prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, we know how easy it is to look to the right and to the left and hope that others hear this call, and yet we know in our own hearts, Lord, how quickly we are to uh, bring 
uh, shame upon the name of our neighbor. And we ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have been party uh, to gossip, that we have not only been the source of it, but we have also been those that have spread it among others and received those reports without seeking reconciliation as you have called us to do. Lord, you're the only one who can reconcile uh, brothers and sisters who are divided against one another and that we would do so because the gospel is real, that you have been able to reconcile a holy God to a sinful people and so you must obviously be able to reconcile sinful creatures one to another. Lord, that your spirit would do a great work in our church and that you would sanctify us from this sin and that you would bring about a much greater grace uh, of covering over one another's in, uh, iniquities and uh, showing deference and, and believing uh, that which is good about one another, giving the benefit of the doubt. Lord, you alone can do that work of grace in our hearts and help us to build uh, your church in a way that would honor you and show the world that there is a difference uh, among believers, that it is not the same backbiting that they might be familiar with. And we just ask that your spirit would accomplish these things for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, the Lord has given to us his assurance uh, of pardon from Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Well, this is the Christmas season of being joyful, and there's, that's the reason that we're joyful, is because a Savior has come to live the perfect life that we failed to live, to die the death we deserve, and to rise again so that we can sing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee with hearts that have been changed. Let us stand and praise him together.
Please join me in our prayer of thanksgiving. Father, thank you for the small glimpse of heaven we were able to see through worship. We pray that we would truly be a joyful people. Whatever stage or area of life we are in, help us to live each day to enjoy and glorify you. Thank you that we were once again able to set aside time this past week to give thanks to you and remember the blessings you have given each of us, both big and small. But even in this, we need your grace to remember and truly be thankful for these things. And as we now look forward to the Christmas season, thank you for the greatest blessing and that your son came to dwell among sinners, took our place, so that whoever believes in Jesus would have eternal life. We also ask for the offering we are now to uh, receive would further your kingdom here on earth and that we would give with cheerful hearts. Be with Pastor Jeff and give him clarity as he brings us your word. Soften our hearts so that we would walk closer to you when we leave this place. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you join me in a time of corporate prayer where we intercede for each other? Again, I just remind you that if you don't, um, if you're not on the uh, prayer list for our church and you're a member of our church, please sign up for that. You should be receiving these. The things I'm going to pray about this morning, some of them are in the bulletin. There are additional things that are found in those prayer requests. Would you come to with me to our God in prayer? <clears throat> Our Father, your word says in the epistles that we should count up pure joy when we face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And we should let that perseverance, those trials that work that perseverance, do its perfect work, that we might be complete and lacking nothing. That's what the word says. And Father, when we're in the middle of those difficult times, it's very difficult for us to sense the ways in which we're working. Our first inclination is simply to escape whatever difficulty we are facing, especially if it is something that is very painful and we feel it deeply in our hearts. We just want it to pass. And we do pray that by your tender mercy, the things that burden us would in fact be relieved Jesus said that we could cast every care upon him because he cares for us. So we do that. For each person who is here, there are burdens that we carry. Perhaps we've been reminded of those burdens over the Thanksgiving holiday. Maybe this empty place at our Thanksgiving celebration because someone has passed away. Or it could be as simple as someone who is not able to join, who ordinarily would be there. Maybe there are heartaches and trouble in our family. We find it difficult to eat a meal and to converse civilly. We look forward, Lord, to your restoring and renewing grace in those relationships. And we pray that those things would be restored, that there would be renewal. That those places in which there's trouble and heartache, you would bring joy and a renewed relationship with those around us. Perhaps the struggle that we're facing is not something that stands between us and another, maybe it is the effect of sin in this world. And we see that in the prayer requests that members of our congregation have brought to our attention. But we also realize there are many other things that we are facing. It's cold and flu season. Some of us simply don't feel well. We ask for your strength for those who are walking through even these minor illnesses But then we especially pray for those who are battling and watching others battle very serious and deep trouble. We pray along with Tracy Bassigal for her great niece, for Avery. This little girl's only nine months old and she's holding her own, Lord. But we pray that you give her strength, that she would start to recover, that you would take away the effects of the meningitis that she is suffering with and you would be with her family. Father, in this time in which this very little girl is struggling so greatly, would her family see the power and the grace of Jesus Christ applied to her life in her healing? We rejoice with Steve Platt that you've given him a pacemaker and that the effect in his heart was so clear and that he has so much more energy and is feeling so much better. Lord, we rejoice that you've given us these things, and we thank you with him and his wife for your care. We're also thankful for the bakers and especially the way in which their daughter, Amelia, is continuing to recover. 
We pray that you would give, especially her mom and dad, patience as they help her while she recovers for her sur- uh, from her surgery. We also pray for Peter Lorup. We're thankful for the meeting he had with this orthopedic surgeon. We're thankful for the progress he is making. We ask that you would give him wisdom in his job and the way he oversees his son. We pray also for his heart, Lord, that he would have a softening to your word and to its truth. We pray for Dan Corhorn. Father, we pray, him, pray for him in his struggle with esophageal cancer. We pray especially for the surgery that is scheduled in just a few days. Lord, we ask for the surgeons who will be operating on him that you would guide their hands and that the cancer would be removed. We're thankful that Dan is feeling good and able to work, and we pray for your blessing on this surgery, that whatever needs to happen afterward, that you would give wisdom and understanding, and Lord, that you would bring healing to him. We pray for my wife Karen and for others like her who continue to struggle through long-term illnesses, especially the effects of COVID. Most of us have turned our attention to other things, and we've wanted to put these things in the rearview mirror. We pray for strength and recovery and for wisdom for the treatments that are being attempted. Would you please restore, Lord, but where restoration is not possible, where that is not your will, we also pray for patience. And for those words that the apostle said that we noted at the beginning of this prayer, that you're working perseverance in us. And then we pray for our dear brother, Zach Francois, and the work that he is doing in Haiti. We're thankful that he could return there. We pray for his safety while he is there. And we look forward to him coming to be in our area in January. We pray for safety not only for him, but for all those MAF workers who were involved in Haiti. We pray for effectiveness and mission across the world, not only for him, but also for those that he works with, for those who are striving to bring the gospel to places that are dangerous. Thank you for their courage. And we pray that you would bring great success, even in the middle of political and cultural upheaval. And then we think this morning of those places in our world where there's conflict, where there's war happening. We pray for those who are suffering in Ukraine with the continuing war between the nation of Ukraine and Russia in that place. We also pray for those who are suffering in the Middle East, in the nation of Israel. Father, would you bring an end to that war? We, we thank you for the hostages who are being released And we ask, Lord, that you would bring justice there, that there would be restoration of peace, but, Lord, that you would do that in such a way that that peace would be long-lasting and those who have done terrible things would be brought to justice. And then we also pray, Lord, for the effective work of your gospel across the world. This morning we're praying especially for the persecuted church in the Sudan. There have been more than 3,000 Sudanese who've escaped to Egypt recently. And there have been more than four million, four million members of that nation who have had to escape because of the war and the economic oppression. It's hard for us to imagine all those people moving to different places in the world. Some of them have come to our own nation. Father, I think of those Sudanese that I met over the summer in Canada And the way in which those who are striving to bring the gospel and comfort to those who have suffered so much oppression, 
Lord, would you bring great peace, not only to that nation, but would you heal those who have lost loved ones, those who have seen terrible things, those who have been enslaved, those who have been forced to fight in a war against their will. Lord, this world has a lot of cruelty in it, a lot of injustice. And we do ask that you would bring peace to that nation as well, and you would especially protect those who are working on behalf of the gospel, that you would bring that peace through the great peace that Jesus himself said that he came to bring. Lord, that is our request. And as impossible as it seems to us, that through the gospel there would be peace in places like Ukraine and in Israel and in Sudan. Lord, you are able to do that and even so much more. And Lord, we are grateful to enter into a time of year in which we think about the coming of our Savior into this world. He is our hope. He is our peace. There is no other way Jesus himself claimed. And as we listen to your word, especially a song of joy that Mary, the mother of Jesus, offered this morning in Luke, would you also bring great joy to our hearts that we would not be silent impartial, dispassionate witnesses of the song that she sang. Instead, send your spirit here, Lord, in a great way that as we understand her song, we would see ourselves in light of the word of God. We would see the greatness of our Savior Jesus, the one whom Mary bore, and we would be moved to sing with joy in the same words that she uttered so many years later. Father, we are grateful that you promised to hear this. And that your spirit is here to do a great work. And so we pray for his power to be applied here as we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you could note in the prayer that I just offered this morning, we're taking a break from the gospel of John as we will through the end of the year. It seems strange for me to say that, doesn't it? We're nearly at the last month of the uh, year, we're almost to the end. It feels like we were just in January. When I say that, I understand. I talk like an old man. <laughs> they say that the days sometimes go slowly, but the years and the months go by quickly. And that's really true. But we're glad this morning to turn then to a chapter of the Bible and a portion of that chapter in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at some portions of the narrative about the coming of Jesus and the weeks leading up to the day that in our culture we celebrate Christmas. And this morning we're looking specifically at Luke chapter 1 verses 46 uh, through 55, or rather 56. And this is the song that Mary sang after two things occur earlier in Luke chapter 1. First, there is an angel that appears to Mary and says, you'll be the one through whom the Messiah will come. And then the angel says a second thing, and that is that her cousin Mary will also bear a child, even though Elizabeth is old. And so these two things go together, and as Mary listens to this news about Elizabeth, she is moved to go to Elizabeth to see this as a confirming evidence that God's word is true. And so immediately before this song that Mary sings, Mary visits Elizabeth. She sees that God's promise to Elizabeth is true. Elizabeth testifies that when Mary, Mary's voice is heard by Elizabeth, 
The baby who will be John the Baptist leaps in her womb for joy to hear the sound of the mother of our Lord. And then we pick up the words of the gospel writer at verse 46 where we read these words. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked in the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. I began this series of sermons about the coming of our Savior by telling you about a man that none of you know. When I was in middle school, Our church did not have a boys' club or any sort of club equivalent to that, so I went to a church in a neighboring community. And in that neighboring community, in the 6th and 7th and 8th grade group, the oldest group for boys' club, there was a man that you might not even notice if you didn't know the work he did with those boys. He was a man who worked in the local grocery store. He was in charge of produce. And that man lived a relatively humble life. He went to work every day. The grocery store was open, stocking the produce. He went home at night, cared for his wife and his couple of kids. And the place in which he really invested was in the lives of these boys who came to Boys Club in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Now, if you're in that age group this morning, I will tell you from my own experience, even though it's been a number of years ago, those can be very difficult times. You're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out your relationships with other people. Maybe you're even struggling some in understanding your place in this world. And this man, who will go nameless, although I know his name, was such an incredible blessing to me. Because not only in what he said, but in the way he interacted with me, it was clear in his humility, in the way that he went about his life, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ was powerfully at work. To say it differently, the way of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was clearly evident in his life. Not because he had some great job that people would recognize him for. I imagine at some point when he dies, his obituary will not contain all sorts of praise from people who are famous. He will simply note, at least for me, that this man was a man who lived humbly as characteristic of the kingdom of God. The reason I start this series of sermons leading up to Christmas with the example of this man is because this song that we have here in Luke chapter 1 has very much the same tone. 
And that is in the Christian church, within the kingdom of God, God moves greatness through humility. It is the nature of the way that Jesus came into the world, and it is the way in which the kingdom of Jesus Christ works. And even if that might not sound life-changing to you, maybe it does, I don't want to pull back from how striking that might be, that God works great things through humility. Here's the thing I want to add on to that. That not only does God do great things through humility, but that dynamic is reason for the greatest joy. And the point of this morning's sermon is a very simple one. And this is what I hope will happen as you leave this place of worship this morning. That you will similarly have a joy that comes from understanding the dynamic of the kingdom of God. That God moves greatness through humility. Let me explain that to you this morning. There are three things I want to explain. The first comes in verses 46 through 49, where Mary notes that the work of God, the way God works, working greatness through humility, is a work that she sees personally. You will not be surprised when I say to you that what has happened to Mary in these verses that precede this song has a profound effect on her. I've already noted to you, she's heard from the angel, the promise that she will bear Jesus the Messiah. She's also heard the promise that Elizabeth will bear a son, even though she is an old woman. And Mary is moved to rejoice. Mary is overwhelmed by the notion that a God could do these kinds of things. And the joy of this passage starts with the effect that Mary senses in her own hearts, because Mary views herself as lowly and unimportant. She herself is not a great woman. She's no princess. She's no queen. She's nobody that the world around her would view as someone with power. She's very likely this morning in this passage a teenager, a teenager for humble circumstances. And Mary, therefore, senses the dynamic that God moves greatness through humility, first in the way that she talks about that working in her own heart. You'll notice in verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She notes my soul and my spirit because she is talking about something that is deeply personal, that is happening within her. God has been gracious according to verse 48 in looking upon his lowly servant. She calls herself a bondswoman or literally a female slave. If there were another way for her to describe her loneliness and humility, she would have. She's using every word that she can imagine. Lowly estate is a suitable description of a woman who is barren. And it certainly applies, at least it had in the past, to Elizabeth. But Mary specifically applies that to herself because she wants the song to reflect the contrast between the greatness of what God is doing and somebody who is lowly and humble, somebody in her social position. And the first thing that she says about this contrast between greatness moved through humility 
is that she says, I can see that in my own life. I see what God is doing. Second, she says, and I see that this is a pattern in the way that God has worked in others like her. What is deep within Mary's heart is also found in other places in the Scripture. And in just a moment, I'm going to note for you the way in which Mary connects her own circumstances with others who have been in similar circumstances in other places in biblical history. But there seems to be an overt parallel, rough somewhat, but yet I think discernible, between 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and the song of praise that Baron Hannah offers to the Lord, and then this song of praise that we have here in Luke chapter 1. In both places, you have someone who does not have a child receiving the news that they will receive a child from the Lord, and they are overjoyed. Even further, I want you to see that Mary's song of praise in this chapter is made up almost entirely of quotes from the Old Testament. This is like what happens to you, perhaps, if you memorize a passage of Scripture and you're walking through the day and something happens and you remind yourself, you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Or maybe you say to yourself, the Lord is my strength and my song. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength. Who shall I be afraid? Those words come flooding back into your mind because they are passages of Scripture that help you understand the circumstances in which you find yourself. And Mary is doing the same thing here. She can find no greater way to express her joy than to string together a series of quotations from the Old Testament. She's literally singing God's word back to him. As if to say, what you said is true. They were true in the Old Testament, they're true now. I can see them applied in my circumstances. This is the way you've always worked, and I can see you working in me now. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And all of these quotes, again, are used to contrast the greatness of what God is doing in the humility of who Mary perceives herself to be. And the third way in which she speaks of the way that God is working as affecting her personally is not only she says, I see it, I see that you've always worked this way, She also says in her song, and I see that this is just the beginning of a great thing. There is a unique parallel in one of the verses of this song. If you'll notice, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices. Those two words about rejoicing are meant to be in parallel and yet they if i can be a little bit a little bit nerdy here they're two very different verb tenses one is i'm doing it right now and i'm doing it with the fullness of who i am and one is i'm anticipating this going on forever and ever i rejoice now And I'm going to continue to rejoice. I rejoice a long time. My rejoicing now is the only beginning of great rejoicing which is to come. This is not the end of this song. It's merely the beginning. And Mary says, not only do I find that joy in operation in my own heart, I see 
that joy in the way that you've always worked, being great, bringing great things from those who are humble. And now I see what you're doing now and what I'm singing about is simply the beginning for what you will do in my life and for future generations. Look at verse 49. She says, from now on many uh, generations will call me blessed because of the power of God who's done a mighty thing in Mary as one who fears him. The emphasis here is on the power of God to work for his people. This is the power of God to work in his people. She notes in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The holy that she notes there is not only a moral quality, it's to say that he is set apart by his almighty power. He is unlike anyone else. He can do things like no one else does. What does God do that is unlike what anyone else does? It is this dynamic that God brings great things out of humility, out of those who are lowly, those who seem despised, those who seem almost unusable. God works to do great things. Now, if up to this point in this sermon, in a moment I'm going to go on to the next major thing I want to tell you. If this sermon seems a little detached for you, I want to bring you into a conversation I had recently with somebody I've been coming to know. And if you're listening this morning, you'll know who you are. We've been talking for some time over a number of months, and the last time I talked to him, he noted to me that he was interested in my opinion about what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening with Israel. And the conversation wound around to the question of what really is the difference between Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. I said, if you want to understand the difference between Islam and Christianity, it comes down to this dynamic. The Islamic faith works change from the outside in. It is about forcing, compelling someone else to do. It is less about deep conviction. It is about conformity. It's about making sure it happens in the way that whoever has the power brings it about the way they want. Christianity, however, works from the inside out. In the Christian faith, God changes our hearts by the power of the Spirit of Christ and transforms us first in the inside, and then our life externally begins to reflect what God has done inside. What's necessary in Islam, then, is to have the power. That is the dynamic necessary in Islam, to have the power, whether it's your particular sect of Islam, you need the power, or if it's in a nation, you need the power to bring about Islamic, the Islamic way of life. But in Christianity, I told my friend, there's a different dynamic. It's not that Christians are disinterested in power, that Christians don't participate in the political process, that we don't care about freedom, we care about all those things. But the fundamental way in which Christianity works is different. We're not seeking power to impose ourselves and our beliefs on others. We're seeking the internal change by the power of Christ that actually transforms life and communities and nations and the world. And the way in which that is most clearly demonstrated is in the way that God 
works in history. Using those who are lowly, those who are humble, those who are almost looked past in order to move great things. Which brings me to the second way that we see that God works great things through humility. If Mary says, I can see that personally in the way that you are working in my life, I want you to see in verses 50 through 53 that that way of working is pervasive. It's not just from Mary. She has noted, I have seen that in other women who are in similar positions in the past in the Old Testament. Now as she sings in verses 50 through 53, she says that I can see throughout the entirety of Scripture that is the way that you work. If you look there in verse 50, it says, And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has set away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There's a very good argument that what the song leads to, crescendos to, is that word mercy that is found in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament in Greek, this mercy is translated with an idea of God's faithfulness to his people over and over and over. And that is not a new idea. It is a way of introducing who receives this power applied. It is shown to those who fear him. It has been demonstrated over and over and over to his people. Those that God cares for and loves receive this mercy. That covenant faithfulness is from generation to generation. And that verse, with that mercy, brings into sharp focus the truth that Mary is singing that as God's faithfulness to his people is not about the greatness of his people. Instead, it is about the greatness of who God is. God has never chosen his people based on the greatness of who they were or what they could bring to him. Instead, God works in people almost intentionally. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sympathetic to the fact that some of you are struggling with colds. I seem to have lost my voice for a second. All right, there we go. God intentionally seems to contrast the greatness of his power with the weakness of those that he works in. He uses his power to reverse our expectations. And then there's one more thing I want you to see in verses 54 and 55. That is the way that God works is proven. 
The last couple of verses are meant to emphasize something very important about this God, that he moves his greatness from the lowly. The way Mary can know this is the way God works, the way that God will work through the son who is in her womb. And that is how God has worked through the people of Israel throughout history. Again, if you look back over the nation of Israel, they were never considered a world power, at least not like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They were a small country that was very often under the control of another power. Yet through this little nation, this small people, the ones that God says in Deuteronomy, he did not choose because of the greatness of who they were. These are the ones he can and does use. He brings greatness from the lowly. This morning, as I think about that with you, I want to make two applications. And I want to be brief and sort of to the point partially because I want you to understand and partially because I want to preserve my voice. The first application I want to make for you is a historical one. And I want to read to you a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. If you're familiar with him, you will know all that he contested about the Christian faith. And among all the things he did not like about Christianity was this. He says, Christianity has taken the part... Christianity has taken the part, that is, preferred the part of all the weak. Christianity has preferred the low, those the rest of society would consider the botched. It has made an ideal out of the antagonism to all the self-preservation instincts of sound life. Now, if that quote is hard to understand, let me just put it this way. Christianity is based on the notion that it is from the lowly that God does great things. It is based on the notion that from the weak, the vulnerable, the ones who are not strong, God does bring greatness. And Christianity does so because our faith is founded in what to much of the world appears to be weakness. This is what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 1 Verse 27 and following. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written... Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. I read that rather quickly, but I want to simply explain two things about that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First, Paul says very clearly that the nature of Christianity is that God will use those who are lowly and despised, what I've captured under the word humble, in order to do great things. Why? In order to demonstrate that the power belongs to God and Jesus Christ and not to us. Praise the Lord. Because if it is necessary for us to bring about great things by our power, we will have two reactions. First, when things go well, we will be what? Proud. And when things go very badly, how will we respond? We will despair. 
But if God intentionally uses those who are lowly in order to highlight the greatness of his power, then there is no reason for us to fear or to hesitate or to fall back. It is to simply follow our Savior Jesus Christ and to trust in his power and to do what he calls us to and to trust that he will do great things. My sermon this morning is not a call to you to do great things. My call to you is to trust in Jesus Christ who will do great things through you. Do you believe that? One is moralism. The second is Christianity. The first one ought to discourage you. The second one should fill you with hope. Which secondly... And this is a very specific application and one I've already led to. I want you to see that God can work through you. I mean that. You might be saying in your mind at this point, but you have no idea who I am. I've got all these things that would keep that from happening. I've got my natural weaknesses. I also have my own sinful proclivities. I have a history. All those things, I cannot believe that God is able to work through you. If you wonder whether God can work through you, that may not be a sign of faith. If, however, you believe that the power of God can work in you both to transform you and to do great things through you, That is genuine faith. Because at the very heart of this passage, and here's where I want to end, I want you to see this. That God bringing, moving great things through the humble is not only true about Mary. It is not only true about us. It is the very nature of Christ coming into this world. Later on, when we hear the Magi coming, where do they go? They go to King Herod. Why do they go to King Herod? Because they assume one who was born king of the Jews who would be born where? In a palace. He would be royalty. There would be shouts of joy. There would be parades. There would be trumpet calls. The son of the king has been born. Instead, the Magi go to the lowliest place imaginable, a cattle stall where animals feed and live, dark, probably smelly, the most common place a baby could be born. Why? In order to emphasize to us this central truth, those things that we value most highly, that our culture values The power that we believe will bring about great things is not inherent to the gospel. In fact, it is in opposition. By the nature of the coming of Jesus Christ, we are to know that God will move great things through the humble. That was true for Jesus, and therefore it must be true of his kingdom. And if that is true, then every single one of us, no matter what our place, can leave here this morning with the greatest possible joy. Because of all the places in your life where you've made mistakes and messed up, 
you're naturally limited. You're not as smart as other people. You don't have as many opportunities as others. Whatever it is that is a natural limitation in your life, here's the good news for you this morning. That does not limit our God. Not at all. Sing for joy with Mary in the kingdom of God because God is moving great things to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that the way in which your kingdom works is the opposite of what we often expect. It is not a call this morning not to try to influence and work and do our best. Father, we want to do that. We want to be active in our communities. We want to bring about justice in our world. We want to be involved in arts, in the arts. We want to be involved in education and politics. We want to be involved in these things at the highest level. The call in your word this morning is not to indifference. It is to excellence, but it is excellence with the right kind of hope. And that is that our hope is not in our strength. It is the power of Jesus Christ at work in us. May the nature of his coming and what that says about his kingdom as a whole transform us as your people. That in this community, within this church, we would know, be known as people who are humbled and yet expect the greatest work of God to occur because we know the song of Mary and we rejoice with her and we sing and praise to our God that you do great things. Father, we offer to you our hearts and the entirety of our lives as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing a beautiful song that ushers us into the Christmas season. Come, thou long-expected Jesus.
Just a couple of reminders before we leave. First, there are a couple of elders up here in the front if anyone would like to pray with them after the service is done. The second thing to note is there are a series of or a collection of the um, lesson that I'll be presenting after the service in adult Sunday school. It's on a high top in the back. You can pick one of those up if you're interested. And then thirdly, the choir, the children's choir, is singing, practicing after the, uh, after the service is done here in the front. So if they can come up rather quickly, and then adult Sunday school will start in this room at about 11 o'clock. Receive this blessing. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go in his peace. Amen. Thank you.